He drove into Nashville, Tennessee for the first time on Labor Day of 2000 as a 24-year-old college dropout, knowing absolutely no one, and within 15 minutes of arriving, had become a server to begin making a new life for his young family. After teaching himself how to code in between waiting tables on double shifts seven days a week, he became the first chief architect of an email marketing firm before selling the startup. He went on to co-found a venture capital firm managing a portfolio of over 80 innovative health companies and spun out a sister company, Health Further, advising health system CEOs on innovation. Most recently, he was responsible for bringing professional soccer to Nashville, from a no-name waiter to a marketing technology leader to venture capitalist to pro sports team owner. Join me on this episode of the Curve Benders podcast on the future of health with Marcus Whitney. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curve Benders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curve benders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curve benders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. Hi there, this is David Knorr, and this is Episode 7 of the Curve Benders Podcast. This week, I'm so excited to interview Marcus Whitney of Jumpstart Foundry, a venture capital firm in Nashville, Tennessee, focused on health innovation with over 80 portfolio companies, and co-founder of Health Further, a strategic advisory firm on innovation in health. Marcus will discuss with me where healthcare has been, the state of the industry today, and where he sees the future of health to be headed. We'll also hear about some of the curve benders in his own life. Hi, everybody. David Knorr. I want to welcome you to the Curve Benders podcast. I'm delighted to uh, have uh, joining me a friend, a colleague, uh, someone that I've learned to get to know recently and admire, not just for where he's been, but I'm incredibly excited about a front row seat to where I believe uh, he's going. Uh, as you'll hear his story, uh, as you'll hear his insights, uh, you'll see not just credibility, but empathy and and uh, really incredible foresight into something that an industry that's going to really impact all of us. And when I talk about curve vendors as relationships that change both our trajectory, but also ultimately our destination, you can't help but think of health and healthcare and evolution of health. And I couldn't think of 
a, a better guest to invite than uh, good friend Marcus Whitney. Marcus, welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. Thank you, David, for having me. I am uh, honored and really happy to be here. Thanks for thanks for joining us. For those of you who may not know as much about your background, talk a little about where you've been and what you've done and how you've gotten here. Sure. Uh, so if you live in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, there's a good likelihood you will know a little bit about me or you'll know my story. And if you're not in Nashville, Tennessee, then there's a good chance that you don't. So I'll just frame it up that way. For the last 20 years, I've lived in Nashville. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, but I've lived in Nashville basically my entire adult life uh, and moved here as a college dropout with two young kids. And uh, from that from that day uh, that I moved here, I worked really hard waiting tables and taught myself how to program, to be a web programmer. And that started a 20-year journey uh, of me being a self-taught software engineer who then became a chief technology officer, who then became an, a technology entrepreneur, who then became a venture capitalist, who then became a healthcare venture capitalist and strategic advisor who then became a pro soccer team co-owner. Uh, so that's been my journey over the last 20 years. It's been a lot of fun, a highly creative life. And uh, I think we're here to talk largely about health, but wanted to give that context because I've got experience in technology, entrepreneurship, and venture capital that also sort of you know swirls around uh, my, my sensibilities around where healthcare is going. Love that. So talk a little about uh, Health Further and, and your, your partnership with Vic Gatto and company at Jumpstart. Uh, specifically, kind of what have, what have you done with Health Further? Absolutely. So uh, Vic Gatto is the CEO of Jumpstart Foundry, and I am the co-founder of Jumpstart Foundry. He and I co-founded Jumpstart uh, five years ago uh, as an early stage healthcare innovation fund. And as a sidecar to that, we created Health Further, which started as a, a gathering, a convening in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, many people know Nashville, Tennessee as Country Music USA. Many people don't know that the number one industry by economic impact in Nashville is the healthcare industry. For-profit hospitals were actually invented in America in Nashville with the creation of HCA, Hospital Corporation of America, in 1968. And so uh, we started a convening around healthcare innovation. There really was not one before we started it, uh, and it grew very quickly. It went from about 600 people to uh, just under 2,000 last year. Um, and while we were convening all these leaders in healthcare and, and big healthcare investors and, and innovators and thought leaders, uh, over the course of four years, we, we learned a lot about where the market was going. Um, and last year we decided that the market was about to hit a real inflection point in terms of outsiders starting to come in, uh, things changing in Washington, D.C., and the pace of change was going to outpace uh, what we could cover in a single event. And so we decided, based on the network we had developed, the relationships and credibility that we had, that we at Health Further could move into the strategic advisory space. And so that's what we've been doing for the last year. We've been advising CEOs of large health systems, uh, leaders of uh, municipalities around uh, their healthcare innovation efforts. So... You uh, obviously have a student student of uh, really the evolution of healthcare. Give our audience and, and the title of this session obviously is 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 just that is is kind of future of health. G give our audience um, some perspective on where do you believe, and let's just take U.S. for a second. Healthcare and this business of healthcare is evolving, and let's just say over the next decade. Where do you, Marcus? Where do you see it going? 
Yeah. So I always like to start where, where we've been. And then I think it's easier to kind of understand where we're going. Um, so if you, if you look back 50, maybe even a hundred years, you know, if you look at what were the main causes of, of death, uh, it was disease, uh, famine and war. <laughs> um, that, you know, we had millions of people die in world wars. We had plagues. Uh, life expectancy was in the fifties. Uh, and so the healthcare system, the healthcare industry was really anchored around, uh, acute care. How do we save people from dying from war, right? Surgeries. Uh, how do we deal with amputees? How do we solve these really, really tough diseases? And so you look at the progress that we've made from vaccinations and incredible drug discoveries like penicillin. Um, and then generally speaking, famine, right? And almost nobody uh, suffers from famine anymore. I mean, yes, we, we do have famines around the world, but you asked me to focus on the U.S. And in the U.S., uh, there are very few people who die from famine. Uh, and so the healthcare industry largely solved the problems of the previous century. Uh, the problem is the problems of the previous century are not the problems of the next century. So we now are through the Industrial Revolution. We are now clearly into a new technological revol revolution. Uh, where people are largely knowledge workers, they are sedentary, um, and we have had fast food that's been pumped into culture for the last 25 years. And the big challenges of the future are chronic disease. Um, th so this is diabetes, this is heart disease, uh, this is stroke, um, and the social determinants of health, which is largely the inequalities around income and education. Uh, that have determined people's health outcomes based on the zip code that they live in. And so the, the healthcare system of the future is going to have to deal with those things. It's going to have to deal with inequalities based on, you know, demographics and zip code. And it's going to have to deal with uh, how to get people to change their behavior when there's no labor generated reason to do so. How do we get people active? How do we get people to change their diet? How do we get people to focus on sleeping? How do we get people to focus on hydration? Things of that nature. These are not things that the healthcare industry today an acute care-based system is designed to do very well. And so there is essentially an opportunity for an entirely new industry to spring up uh, over the next 10 years. I'm fascinated by that because in in, uh, in in this idea of curve benders, I talk about 15 forces that are going to dramatically change the way we work, we live, we play, we serve. And not, you brought up technology, you brought up demographics, obviously the economy, uh, the haves and have nots, right? So geopolitics, volatility are just some of the things I talk about. So, so you said a new industry, new healthcare industry is going to pop up. Talk a little more about that. What do you envision? And, and I'm, and I'm fascinated by your view. Will the existing players remain relevant? I mean, you brought up HCA. You know, HCA to me is a classic large box execution where they've got the execution part down, right? Let's let's build a perfect execution box. And you're going to chuckle at this comment because I often talk about perfect execution boxes. You know what they call innovation? You know, cancer. Because if it's shiny and new, let's dig it out. And unfortunately, the chief compliance, chief legal, chief uh, you know, risk officers all become oncologists. And let's dig out that new shiny thing because it doesn't fit in our perfect execution box. So can the existing infrastructure and the big players remain relevant in this new industry? And what do you believe? Talk about this new healthcare industry that you believe will pop up. Yes. So uh, let's just take HCA because they are a very specific uh, type of company in the healthcare industry. So a couple of things about HCA. 
One, uh, they have a better balance sheet than just about any other healthcare company. And so they will be able to withstand the change, navigate the change, acquire throughout the change. And I think weather the storm better than just about any other healthcare system out there. There are others who I would put in the same bucket, but if we're just talking about HCA, I would say because of the strength of their balance sheet, they are very well positioned to be able to navigate. In addition, uh, you know, acute care is not going to go away. Uh, and many of the things that we, uh, that we currently need in the healthcare system are not going to go away. Also, one of the big problems with healthcare innovation is how everybody gets paid. So you have to look at how the healthcare economy is designed. And there's a reason why it's been more innovation resistant. It's because the customer is not a true free market customer as we're used to in just about every other market, right? Um, the customer is an insurance company. And so all of the deals are business to business deals done in a group buying fashion on behalf of the actual user. So you and I, we don't actually negotiate with the providers. We don't, we don't negotiate with the doctors. We get an insurance plan and we do what the insurance plan tells us to do. And so whatever the insurance company is paying the provider to do, that's what the provider is going to do. These insurance companies, and I'm largely talking about commercial ones like United Healthcare, Aetna, Humana, they are operating under the direction of the government. They're operating under the direction of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They, they set the, the baseline prices. They say what gets paid for and what doesn't get paid for. And there's very little innovation outside of what is, uh, what is driven by the government in the United States. So, uh, when you look at a company like HCA, I would say, they are going to be able to sustain a lot better than most people would think they would. Now, when we talk about the future of the healthcare business, what we have to understand is that because of demography, because millennials are going to engage with the healthcare system differently than baby boomers, differently from Generation X, et cetera, uh, and Gen Z will engage completely different from all of them, uh, the, the way that they think about maintaining their health versus, you know, getting into problems and then needing remedies for their health are going to be different. Uh, their willingness to invent in preventative, uh, things that are not happening inside of health insurance plans today is going to be different. And so this rise of an educated healthcare consumer that invests in their health for the long term, as opposed to pays a, a premium and a deductible through an insurance company for services after they've gotten sick, that's going to be the primary shift. Also, one other important shift is that large employers, large self-insured employers, so think about companies like Walmart, Amazon. Uh, Walmart's the largest employer in the United States. They pay billions of dollars in healthcare uh, costs for their associates and their, and their team. Uh, they are looking at how they can take healthcare into their own hands, uh, and lower their costs as well as improve, uh, the labor utilization that they have. So healthcare is a massive, massive, uh, uh, operating expense line for them to look at. And given their infrastructure and their balance sheet, they think they can do a lot in that world as well. So. If we're talking specifically about HCA, I would say their balance sheet is very strong. They're in very good markets. They have very good operators and things aren't going to change that fast. So they'll be in good shape, but there are lots of smaller hospitals out there. Those are the ones that you're going to see really get crunched and in many cases be forced to close. I saw, a, um, I think it was a 60 Minutes piece about a rural hospital that just could not financially meet make its obligations and they had to close. Do you agree? And you brought up the social 
uh, inequalities in some ways uh, that lead to outcome. As more and more of these remote hospitals and remote health facilities close, doesn't that even put more pressure on urban access to quality health care and timely health care? And uh, so answer that one first, and then I want to jump into preventative. I love the preventative approach. Yeah. So um, so we, we've had well over 100 rural hospitals close uh, in, in recent years. So this is an epidemic. This is a really big problem. Um, we don't have a good solution for it yet. Uh, and uh, yeah, this is a really, really big problem. Uh, you know, the the closest center of care for many small rural communities is getting further and further. And it's not like those communities are doing any better from an economics perspective where they can afford uh, to have to drive longer distances to receive the care that they need. So generally speaking, this is a very, very big problem. I would say I don't know that it puts any additional pressure on urban centers because another large trend that's affecting things is gentrification. So the cost of living in urban centers is only getting higher. It's pushing lower cost uh, in, uh people in a lower socioeconomic band uh, out of the urban core into suburbs and in some cases even into rural communities. And so really it's just a case of we have no solution for these rural communities. Um, there are some health systems out there that operate very, very well that have scale. And so they've been, they've, uh, figured out how to lower sort of the cost of operations to keep things profitable. Uh, and that's great. We, we're going to need more consolidation, but these small one, two, three health systems that are existing in rural America, they are really, really struggling because they can't get that group buying power uh, to sort of offset the cost at the facility level. So uh, to be completely honest, we don't have a good solution at all for this right now. We're going to have to improve telemedicine options. We're going to have to improve uh, transportation options. We're going to have to improve, uh, you know, smaller facilities that, that can handle triage and can handle primary care in these communities. We're going to have to create a whole new model to take care of, of, of these communities. When I, when I hear we don't have a, a good solution and, and the things we're going to have to improve, I, I see opportunities, right? So a, you know, a, a, maybe a health executive today that says and sees this and says, you know, there's a, there's an opportunity for me to go, you know, dramatically raise the bar on, on, on the use of telemedicine or transportation or these many hospitals or smaller facilities that can do some of this. Talk about um, healthcare industry of the future. So, so you said a more educated healthcare consumer is coming where they're willing to invest in preventive, not in these health plans. Talk about millennials and Gen Zs and how do you believe they're going to engage differently? And what does that engagement model due to the current health system? Well, we're continuing to get better mobile experiences, mobile healthcare experiences uh, every day, right? Um, the Apple Watch was a huge step forward in that in that way. But, you know, we've also had Fitbit and companies like Withings uh, that have been creating these mobile uh, technologies, you know, that have been creating scales. You know, m- many of the things that people need to manage their uh that, that they need to manage their chronic diseases uh, can be handled in a, in a consumer setting. Many of them, you know, you need to check your blood pressure. You need to check your A1C. You need to check your glucose. You need to check your weight. You need to check all these things on a regular basis. You need to stay active and you need monitors to help you stay active. So these are all the kinds of things that, that technology is enabling people to, uh, to better manage their, their own, uh, well-being with, um, and, and chronic disease. Let's, let's, let's make no uh, bones about it. You know, obesity is a massive contributor and, and has significant comorbidities with diabetes, heart disease, 
uh, stroke, and even many forms of cancer, quite frankly. And so, you know, to the degree that we can get people to make better choices in their lives and give them the tools to manage their ability to make those choices, uh, you know, we, we can help people you know, remain healthier. And, and ultimately it will end up costing not just the health systems less, but it will cost households less because healthcare, I don't know if you've checked the bills or the, the economy lately, but it's really, really expensive. These procedures, you know, that, that come from a lack of, uh, maintaining one's health are really, really expensive for, for everybody. And, and so, you know, it's in all of our best interest to try to figure out how do we get people to eat healthier? How do we get people to focus on good sleep? How do we get people to focus on, on exercise? How do we get people to focus on mindfulness? Uh, you know, we haven't talked really at all about behavioral health and, and the significant issues we have around substance abuse and suicide and depression and anxiety. And, you know, we're, ne- we're now at a point where we're, we're recognizing the importance of things like meditation and mindfulness, right? Uh, and and apps like Calm are, are really starting to come to to the forefront. It, w- 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 you know, this and Calm has like a billion dollar market cap at the moment. So so yes, I mean, I think uh, we're we're getting to a point where we're seeing lots of health and wellness applications, Peloton, Livongo go public uh, and have a meaningful impact, but their connectivity into the healthcare system of old, specifically into health insurance companies, that's not there yet. Today, health insurance companies still only really know how to pay for the most part for sick care, but that is going to change. That is going to change. Medicare Advantage is going to change that. Um, uh, directives out of, out of uh, Washington, D.C. are going to change that. So, that it's just something we all have to continue to track and and uh, and be engaged with. So, uh, with our health NXT uh, innovation roundtable, I think two data points might be useful to our audience. One, uh, we we scanned uh, everybody that we had touched for healthcare stories. Marcus, something like ninety two percent of the individual healthcare stories weren't positive. Right, so I had this issue, couldn't get access, couldn't get quality. The experience was less than almost any other facet of my life. Why do I have to keep filling out the same paperwork over and over again as I go see different health providers? I mean, just on and on and on. And the other data point that we got was kind of the top healthcare challenges from our member conversations, like data and analytics came up as big, total consumer health, population health services value-based payments, digital healthcare organizations, uh, rising pharmacy costs, external market disruptions like Amazons and of the world, operational effectiveness, opioid, right? You and I talked about behavioral health. Opioid epidemic continues to be a big struggle. And of course, above all this and and consistent with all this is the whole cybersecurity space. Uh, So, um, obviously, we're talking about curve benders, which are relationships in your future. Talk about what relationships are really going to be strategic in healthcare moving forward. So you, you're exactly right in that. As a patient, I'm not really the consumer. I'm not. I'm not driving that free market kind of demand and supply like all the markets are. What relationships would be really important, really strategic in the future of health as, as you see it evolve? I, I would encourage um, I would encourage your listeners to get educated on Medicare Advantage. There there are many different relationships that I think are going to be important. Um, obviously, all of the health and wellness relationships are, are you know and the rise of these types of companies uh, are going to be very very important, but. If you're talking about healthcare industry and real change transformation in the healthcare industry, I would encourage your listeners to get to know 
Medicare Advantage and what Medicare Advantage is really about. Medicare Advantage is uh, a capitated rate based insurance model. So it, it is the closest that we have to uh, a government sanctioned, government directed insurance approach to true value based care, to, to paying for outcomes and paying for value as opposed to paying for volume and paying for procedures. And so if you, if you just watch Medicare Advantage and its current penetration in the market, who are the insurance companies that are providing it, um, where you can get a Medicare Advantage plan and what the benefits look like on a Medicare Advantage plan, that will show you a lot of the, of the types of innovative relationships, uh, that, that I think are going to, to, to drive better healthcare outcomes, both economically and, uh, from, from a health, you know, a personal health outcomes perspective, uh, in, in the future in the United States. And, and most people don't, you know, they hear Medicare Advantage, they don't really know what that means. Uh, but, it, but it is a pretty, it's a fairly different way of paying. And for the large part, uh, it hasn't, really played out yet. We have less than 10% of Americans on a Medicare Advantage plan today. Um, Humana is, is really going entirely Medicare Advantage, but there aren't that many Medicare Advantage plans out there at the moment. But that is going to grow. I think it's going to grow rapidly. And as those plans come out, when you look at what the benefits are that are included, you're going to see all sorts of new types of things that your insurance company will pay for because they're they're thinking about the dollars differently inside of a Medicare Advantage plan as opposed to just about every other plan that's out there. Hearing from you is a lot more focused on preventive and let and how do we stay healthy and keep healthy versus how do we fix it afterwards. Uh, yes, yes, that's it's definitely thinking about prevention. You know, there's it's it's very clear at this point that. The current model overall is a sick care model, not a healthcare model. And in order to move to a healthcare model, we have to incentivize everybody in the system to keep people healthy. And that's not the way that the system is designed today. So you know, we have a systems design issue. We don't have people that, that don't care. We have, we have a poorly designed system. Like I said, this, this system is designed for problems that we had a hundred years ago, right? Famine, war, uh, you know, and, and serious, serious disease. I don't mean cancer kind of disease. I mean, plagues. I mean, mumps, measles, right? Uh, polio, you know, and, and those things are all gone. So we need a new system that, that helps people live for the next hundred years. Uh, and, and we haven't built that yet. So we're going to have to build that together. So, uh, the other tenant in the curve vendors model is do not leave your personal and professional growth to somebody else. Marcus, how do you, learn? How do you grow? Uh, and, and what has worked for you in your personal growth journey? Uh, you know, what's worked for me is uh, to, to not try to do what everyone else is doing, uh, but to, to follow my heart in, in terms of what excites me um, and, and leaning into my own strengths. Um, so I, I was genuinely excited to learn how to become a computer programmer. And so I worked really hard at it. Um, and I think I, I overperformed what, what would have been expected of me in the market. And, you know, even though I've, I've changed my, uh, my career, uh, several times over the last 20 years, every time it was because I was genuinely excited about what I was doing. And so I think a lot of people, um, discount the power of excitement, uh, you know, in their own lives and, and in the choices that they make, feeling like they have to make certain choices because they're the safe, responsible choice. You know, I think often uh, excitement can overcome a lot of the risk 
uh, that, that sort of built into the things that we're doing on a day to day basis. And, and conversely, lack of excitement can actually introduce a lot of risk because there's, there's a potential for self sabotage when you don't actually believe in what you're doing. Obviously, we're talking about curve benders as relationships who have changed, profoundly changed our direction, our journey. Can you comment on, on maybe two or three that have had that impact on you? Uh, yes, I absolutely can. Uh, w- one of the companies that I worked at early in my technology career, 2003, uh, I, I was the fifth employee at an email marketing company called Emma. And, and back in 2003, email marketing was very, very innovative. Now, you know, everyone's got an email marketing platform. Uh, but, but back then, uh, they didn't. And uh, the f- co-founders of that company, Clint Smith and Will Weaver, really, through example, and through the opportunities they afforded me uh, really hooked me on this whole startup entrepreneur innovation thing. Uh, you know, I, I, but prior to that, I was into the technology and into building software. They really introduced me to the experience of building a company, building a culture, building a value proposition, building a brand, uh, building a team, building meaning, uh, creating value, creating wealth, uh, equity. Th- these were all concepts I didn't know prior to my experience with them. And so uh, I give them a lot of credit for opening my eyes to that, allowing me to experience that, um, and maybe even pushing me out there a little bit further than than I deserve to be based on my experience and capabilities, uh, you know, and, and getting a lot out of me just through hard work, dedication and commitment to them. Um, so that would that, that would be, you know, one set of people. Um, I, I would definitely highlight my partner, Vic. Um, I met Vic in 2008, uh, and he uh, was a venture capitalist, and I went to him with a dumb idea. He didn't invest, but he formed a relationship with me. Uh, I think he, he saw the my, my commitment to work hard and and you know, probably lack of ego in terms of attachment to my ideas, willingness to, to churn through ideas to get to the right one. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he really single-handedly opened the door to allow me to become a venture capitalist and to, to have these kinds of experiences, which, uh, you know, for any of your, your listeners who haven't seen a picture of me, I'm, I'm African American. There are not that many African American venture capitalists in, in, in this country. And so, um, he, he definitely opened a door, uh, that was, you know, that I'm, I'm forever grateful for. Uh, and then the third is a, a woman named Eugenia Clark. Um, she, uh, is the CEO of the Girl Scouts of, uh, Middle Tennessee. Um, she is also, uh, African American, uh, leader here in, in town. And she, uh, helped me get into a program here called Leadership Nashville. And that, uh, that dramatically changed my, my perspective on the city, changed my network, got me out of just the startup entrepreneur technology world into civic leadership, into understanding how different boards work, um, understanding the government, understanding just, just the inner workings of, of a city. And, uh, from, from that experience, I, I ended up serving on many, many boards. I, I currently serve on the board of the Country Music Hall of Fame and the convention the convention visitors bureau here in, 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 uh, in Nashville and sort of that whole civic part of my life, uh, that was opened up was, was really due to, to a genius. So those, those would be three people that had a, a very meaningful impact on my life and who I still have great relationships with today. Love it. Again, we're talking about curve benders as relationships who dramatically, uh, alter our direction and destination and how we work, how we live, how we play and how we serve. And, and Marcus, those are some great, great examples. So, so give us three things that Marcus aspires to do, will be doing, 
is determined to do by 2030. It's 10 years from now, and, and, and I've always believed we underestimate what we can achieve in the long term. So, so where is Marcus? If you and I were revisit uh, in 2030, give me three things that Marcus is either doing, thinking, uh, aspiring to do. What, what does Marcus's life look like in 2030? Yeah, so, so I would say top of the list would probably be uh, I want to be in the best shape of my life. Uh, in, in 2030, right? So I'm 43 years old. So I'll be 53 years old then. Um, and I want to be healthier at 53 than at any other point in my life. Um, and that would be mentally healthier, physically healthier, spiritually healthier. Um, just overall, I want to be at an optimal level of health in 10 years. And, and I think that will enable everything else that I, that I want to do. Um, you know, professionally, 10 years is, is, is kind of a hard, uh, window to to project out to, especially considering that uh, the iPhone is only 12 years old, you know, and trying to think about uh, how dramatically it has changed the world uh, in in the last 12 years. Uh, I, I just I struggle to wrap my head around it. But but I, I guess from from a quality of of work and an impact of work, you know, I would like to be firmly in the place where I am uh, leveraging my experience at significant scale, probably through content, but at that point, who knows what we're doing between holograms and, you know, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, but to be able to leverage my, my experience and wealth, uh, to impact the world, uh, uh, in a very, very positive way. That's, you know, and, and, and I would say I'm not fully there yet. I, I am still to some degree, you know, spending time as opposed to, uh, uh, influence experience and capital. Um, and so I'd like to clearly make that shift to where, uh, my, my time is, is really mine to own. And, and I, I use it as I, as I see fit. Uh, and I'm not, uh, you know, that's, that's not my, in any way, my primary value exchange medium. Uh, and then I'd say third, you know, I've got two children, uh, who are 20 and, uh, 20 and, and 18. Uh, I'm married and, and I've also got uh, parents who are in their 80s. And so, you know, I, I would hope to be spending a lot more time with my family than I do today. Today, uh, you know, I spend, spend a lot of time working. Um, and in 10 years, I'd like for that to not be as much the, the case, you know, and even if I am working, I would prefer to be, you know, spending more time working with them than, uh, than, than with other people. I love it. I love it. Very focused. I, again, I recently read that beyond all of the checklists and all the to-do lists and all the things that we think about, there are four things that drive most of us. Happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy. And and uh, that's that's the best I can wish for you as a friend and as a colleague. And I want to thank you. I want to thank you for being our our guest. Your Your ideas, your perspective is always insightful, always helpful. And as I said when we first began, I can't wait for a front row seat to all your success to come. For those who want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to learn more about you, your work? How would they get in touch? So if you are interested in healthcare innovation work, I, I would say go to healthfurther.com. 
and uh, just subscribe to our to our email list there. Uh, it, it, I've actually put it on hiatus for a minute, but just go ahead and subscribe because we'll be kicking that off probably late Q4 uh, with an entirely new new platform uh, that I'm very excited about. But to just track me personally, uh, MarcusWhitney.com or Marcus Whitney anywhere on on the web, uh, and I would be more than uh, uh, honored if uh, if your listeners would consider joining my personal newsletter. Uh, uh, called the grind uh, and you can subscribe at my website marcuswhitney.com and you've got a great uh, podcast you've got great material content you're putting out there so i would highly encourage listeners to learn more about marcus m-a-r-c-u-s whitney w-h-i-t-n-e-y at the various sites that he mentioned and learn more about it marcus thanks for being our guest appreciate you having you look forward to staying in touch likewise thank you so much great show If you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast recently, you've heard that I'm working on the Curvebenders book. This will be my book number 11 with tools, insights, case studies, examples, interviews, in essence, the knowledge you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in this idea of future of work. I'm excited to share key sections with the first 100 participants, so go reserve your spot at norgroup.com today. If you go all the way to the bottom of the page in the get in touch section, just capture somewhere Curve Bender Insights. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work, so I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag CurvebendersPodcast, so make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. Podcast.